Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the JMO Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Michaels. Our guest this week, we've got Jason Rylander. Now, this show's a little bit different. Eel pout fishing is so popular for some of you this time of year. I'm not going to have time in the show schedule. I wasn't able to do uh, a schedule an eel pout episode for this year. And uh, because we have archived our old episodes, they're not up on the apps anymore, at least you know our first 150 episodes or so. I figured that uh, I would throw a bone to all the eel pout fishermen and go back. We had a two-part podcast series with Jason Rylander back in 2022, last year, and he did a phenomenal job. I went back in. I found that audio. I put it together in one, so we have a really a long eel pout interview with Jason Rylander from 2022. This will be a special re-release for all you eel pout anglers out there. So if you're into the eel pout, you're going to love it. If you know somebody that's into the eel pout, send this over to them. This is strictly commercial free for all you eel pout anglers out there this year because I wasn't able to put together a fresh and new one. So here you go. Two-part series in one commercial free eel pout with Jason Rylander from 2022 interview. Let's do it. Rylander, uh, I need to get to know you a little bit, so I need to know a little bit of your backstory. Where are you from? You know, kind of what is your background in fishing? Like, and 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 I like it when people start at the beginning. I mean, you know, what, were, were you a kid? Uh, you know, did your dad introduced you when you were five years old on on a lake that you lived on. I mean, give me the whole juicy story there from the beginning and get us up to speed to now. Like, you know, your home bodies of water, where you cut your teeth in fishing in general. Absolutely. So. I grew up in West Central Minnesota, a small town. Uh, let's call it Southern Ottertail County. I wasn't quite in Ottertail County, but I could throw a stick into it. And so plenty of lakes growing up. And really what got me into fishing was my grandpa. My grandpa took uh, us boys. I had a couple cousins and my brother and I, and we did a lot of fishing from shore. We would de- dig up angleworms out of his garden and go catch bluegills. We had a couple of private docks that we would fish. We had some public accesses where we'd go to and, and play around and get uh, get some bluegills. So that's really what got me into fishing as I grew up. Um, my dad was kind he was kind of fished, but he was smart enough to get us a boat. My grandma lived on the lake and started banging around that lake in a 12-foot boat with a five-horse motor when I was just old enough to do the boat safety thing and as I grew up the boats got bigger I got more into fishing and and then as I turned to an adult and really got into fishing and moved up to Bemidji here when I would say I got good at it um, my dad really loved it then because now all of a sudden he was catching fish come out and go fishing with us and we'd actually have some uh, some fish to take home and and the real and yeah so that's kind of how I got into it, and just uh, you know, as I as I moved up to Bemidji with with all the lakes up here, um, really started getting into more into walleye fishing because it was just more consistent and better fishing up here. And bought my first boat, my own, in two thousand and six, and yeah, it's just become a part of me. I love it. 
And so what what would you say? I mean, what what is, what capacity do you uh, uh, encompass in the fishing industry today? I mean, because, I, you know, I see your name all around plenty. Um, you know, the people are, are interviewing you here and there. You got there's articles out there. I mean, so like how would you describe your you know, how you uh, fit into the fishing industry? An advanced amateur, probably. <laughs> kind of a, uh, I've, kind of, I've got a good sense of humor that people seem to, to gravitate to kind of, I'm kind of a goofball on social media and, and I just love meeting people. So as I've been at sports shows, working for some of the companies that I kind of represent, you know, get to meet more and more people and hit it off and, and shoot just, traveling throughout the state or even getting into North Dakota and, and South Dakota and done some fishing in Iowa and Wisconsin, fishing with some of these people I've met because most of them say, yeah, come over and get over and fish with me. Well, people usually mean that and I've taken advantage of it and I've gotten over and went and fished with people, get to know them better. And fishing is supposed to be fun. I have a lot of fun with it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And I do it every, every time I get to go fishing, I've got a great big smile on my face and, Something happens where you get to have a story and and you're with people and you, I mean, I'm blessed to guide part-time a little bit. Not that I do a ton of it, but I get to take people that take people fishing and they're on vacation. So they got a smile on their face. So let's, let's have fun and catch some fish. Yeah, man. I mean, that's like the best side of fishing, of course. And like with, with social media, the way you talk about, you know, how you utilize your social media is like, that's like the best version of social media there's so much weirdness and negativity or whatever but you get it even when you get into the fishing industry there's all kinds of you know but then sometimes you run across just those like those accounts that you just have to follow because you know you just know that it's either going to be good fishing information or it's going to make you smile regardless and uh, I appreciate you I appreciate your social medias and we'll definitely promote those later for sure but to get into this topic we got a lot of ground to cover here today I have you on for a reason and to introduce this it feels like like I haven't for some reason I haven't had a full episode dedicated to eel pout fishing and there's a lot you know in the midwest you know we're talking winter ice fishing season especially you know the second half of the ice fishing season this eel pout it seems like there's there's sort of this this building craze around it. I mean, that's actually to put it lightly. I, th- I feel like we're it's been building for many many years, and I kind of want to have you maybe introduce that a little bit. What has been going on with the eel pout? Because you know that part of the world that you're in, that Bemidji, northern Minnesota, you're surrounded by eel pout. You've become a little bit of an eel pout connoisseur. So maybe start there. Talk a little bit about you know eel pout in your life, and then talk about the popularity around it. Yeah, well, we know. The eel, the International Eel Pout Festival was a thing in Walker for, you know, what did they, I think they ended it at 40 years or darn near there. Um, and there they were, and when that started, it was a trash fish. They were taking them and, and getting them out of Leech Lake, killing them. And, you know, I think for the most part, people were still eating a lot of them, but, uh, you know, they weren't, they weren't well respected. I mean, you'd see, you always hear the stories of the piles outside of fish houses on on Mille Lacs and Lake of the Woods and Leech Lake where the guys would catch them. And basically they went outside to be Eagle food, right? Yeah. Well, definitely in the last, what I would say 12 years, 10 years, 15 years, you've seen a real turn in the attitude. Uh, People have found one, how good a table fare they are. And then two, how much fun they are to catch. I mean, you've got a fish that basically the best time of year to fish for them here in Minnesota anyway is 
know, walleye season's closed, pike season's closed. You can still go chase panfish, but you're not going to catch a five-pound crappie. You're not going to catch a five-pound bluegill, but a five-pound eel pout is pretty average size. So you've got you've got an, a, this opportunity to catch a, a ferocious predator that puts a pretty significant bend in your rod with the potential potential to catch a ten pound plus fish. Now that that sounds fun to anybody that likes angling. Now you add on top of it that it's a freshwater cod and that they they actually taste good. I mean, I think the they got this bad name is because they're you know I think they're beautiful and each one's unique. They got these awesome colorings, but they're not your traditional quote unquote beautiful freshwater fish. You know, they're eel like, they're kind of snake like. Most they kind of turn people off. They don't want to touch them. They're, they think they're really slimy. And, and uh, so they got that bad rep. But when I started fishing for eel pout, you know, I think I caught my, the first one that I really remember, I think I'd caught some growing up as a kid. And, and I guarantee you I didn't touch them. I thought they were gross and whatever. But I caught one. I went on Lake Bemidji and, I don't know, early 2000s, 2004, 2005, I want to say it was. And we were out walleye fishing on Lake Bemidji, and I hooked into a eight-pound eel pout, and I was like, that was incredible. What a super fun fight. And I started kind of digging in, doing some research, and uh, fishing them, targeting them. And that's how I met Matt Brewer, who I – who I guide for North Country Guide Service out of here out of Bemidji. Him and I were the only two people on Lake Bemidji uh, one night in early March. You know, walleye season was done. It was night. Nobody was out perch fishing. Here, there's two trucks on the lake, so obviously we kind of gravitate towards each other, and we meet and we kind of fish together and hit it off. And I learned as much from Matt as I possibly could, and and I took it way to the extreme in the next handful of years. And I was going spending a ton of times just locally around Bemidji, talking to old timers, finding out where they were catching eel pout. You know, they're like, oh, back in the day, we used to catch it all the time. We'd catch them here or there. And so I kind of found some different lakes to just locally, some of these small ones to branch out onto and play around on and kind of cut my teeth that way. And now the last handful of years, you know, I've gotten older, work's gotten busier, my kids are I had kids and <laughs> kids are busier. So my, my time to go exploring and, and play around with it has definitely died down some, but you know, I've learned certain lakes now with, you know, I tend to stick to bigger bodies of water. They have better populations and your cast lakes, anything on that cast lake chain, leech lake, some of those lakes down in by Brainerd, um, Winnie, these bigger lakes, they're just, they just have more fish. And, you know, through trial and error, more or less, because there wasn't, you don't open up the in fishermen and read about eel pout, at least, well, now you do, but you yeah. didn't back then. Yeah, right? that's, that's totally a sign. That's exactly the thing. You know, it's like, man, like how, you know, how far they've come just in, 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 yeah, just in the last dozen years from that aspect, from the content and everything, for sure. Right, right. So it's, you know, in half of the articles I have, read and you know matt brewer was one of the first ones that i've ever saw write articles is and everything that i've seen since i mean a lot of the information is kind of regurgitated it's the same kind of stuff everybody is saying but now that you know the state just did some research on them uh was luckily luckily to be involved in that that was kind of neat they put trackers in the fish and did a big study on them and 
I mean, I even learned, I learned from that. I've, I'm Googling Burbit four times a year just to see if there's a new study or something. I mean, most of my information I'm gathering from some, some scientific studies. The, to nerd out for one quick second, uh, I avoided an internet argument with somebody recently. They, they were saying how well eelpout uh, spawn, how successful they are. And I was like, I kind of disagree with you. I don't think that's the case. Uh, the article I read came from Europe or the study. They found that you know eelpout spawn under the ice. Uh, around here, it's it's typically early March, end of February, early March when they're, when they're doing their spawning here around Bemidji. And the study said that they take their eggs will be, it takes anywhere from two to six weeks for the eggs to hatch. To put that in perspective, a walleye will hatch, I think what I found was like four days. So that's a long time for an egg to be down there and exposed, you know, between perch, whitefish, munchanonum, crayfish. There's a lot of different things that can happen, and, and a lot of things can happen in two to six weeks. Right. And especially if you look at even even on the short term, two weeks, 14 days. I mean, that's a long time to lay there basically on the bottom, open for anybody to eat you. Um, so I, I really don't think they're the, this prolific spawner that everybody does. And, and a lot of the research I've found is some of these, the bigger fish that are, you know, have reached sexual maturity are, are not young fish. It takes them a little while to reach sexual maturity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even just to kind of structure that a little bit, because that was literally like that's the transition I'm looking for is, you know, what do we know about eel pout? Like what is kind of like the the uh, 101 or, or the 201 uh, um, handbook on eel pout of things that we know? Like what? Because I feel like, you know, fishermen in general, you know, just the, the average fisherman that fishes bluegills a lot, he just, you know, the more you fish for something, you're going to learn things about them. Right. And, you know, so, so eel pout is this, sort of like this, this special new creature that, you know, uh, uh, you know, so you've had to have learned, you know, as you're explaining right now, the things that you've learned now that you're pursuing them, you know, what are some of the more basic things? I mean, you talk about their, you know, their reproduction, that's obviously a huge deal because that, that talks, that speaks to, you know, their seasonal, you know, patterns, you know, where they're going to be and things like that and spawning under the ice and, and how they mm-hmm. do it, the recruitment, that's definitely a huge discussion for sure. But even things like, you know, what's their diet? Because I feel like, you know, uh, you don't bait a hook the same for eel pout that you do generally other, you know, like walleyes right. and things like that, right? Like, so, you know, some of their, their the da- the daily patterns, you know, the, the feeding patterns, what kind of habitat are they? What are some of the, you know, real basic building block things, you know, besides the spawning that uh, that you've learned now that you've been pursuing them for this long? Yeah. Um, so right now, as you and I speak, it's mid-February. We're, we're actually, well, we're speaking on Valentine's Day. It is, Valentine's Day is, is to me, the kickoff to my eel pout season, my eel pout fishing. Yeah, you can go out and catch eel pout as soon as there's ice on the lakes. Uh, but now is about the time where you start to catch them in numbers. They're, they're schooling up. They're feeding up in preparation for their spawn. You know, we, we're looking at the spawn locally. Typically is going to happen in two and a half to three and a half weeks from now. Um, in, in talking to some other experienced eel pout fishermen, we've kind of compared notes. 
Um, Tim Humphreys has been guiding for eel pout for many years on Cass Lake, um, a mentor of mine. Uh, he knows a lot about them as well. And, and him and I have always talked like March 4th to March 14th. That's usually the window. So if I was going out tonight to target eel pout mid-February, I'm going to, they're feeding. They're not quite there. You know, they're not, they're not going to necessarily be in spawning areas quite yet. They might start schooling up. The males might start heading to those areas in, in preparation. But for the most part, this is the time of year where you're going to catch those big females because they're going to eat. And for that final egg drop, they want to get ready. And I'm targeting hard bottom areas, access to deep water, sharp breaks, hard bottom. Uh, our main forage on most lakes around here is crayfish. That's They really love eating crayfish. I find a lot of the bigger eel pout on certain bodies of water, I'll see them suspended, which is completely, you know, not what anybody ever thinks of. They don't expect to be fishing 35 feet of water and have this mark 15 feet off the bottom come through, expect to reel up to it quick and jig and, and catch an eel pout. I don't know exactly what they're doing up there. I have my own little series, and I think it's it's feeding. I think they're those bigger fish are looking for some more sustenance. Sustenance is the word. Um, they're looking for more nutritional value than just a bunch of crayfish. They're up there chasing, you know, whether your your forage base is uh, shiner minnows, uh, probably larger ciscos. I fish some yellow in lakes that have trout in them, so they could be up there chasing rainbow trout at night. Um, but I think there's there's various reasons that they're up there suspended because a lot of times when I reel up to those suspended marks, I'm catching the fish. They're biting. They, they don't hesitate. And those are typically, not every time, but on average, those are usually a nicer fish. And I think it's just as they get bigger, their forage base changes a little bit, which I think is common for, for most species, right? You don't have... 15-inch walleyes aren't feeding on Cisco. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. You know, actually, you know, that's sort of, I, I like that part of the discussion. I definitely want to highlight this because I feel like that is such a great talking point. And you know what? We might find out five years from now, um, you know, that that's totally false or whatever it is. But that sort of outside-the-box type of thinking is what will help you catch those fish and be, you know, that, that'll help you get up and reel in and, and, and fish that mark instead of just assume that it's, you know, interference or whatever. And, you know, I think about like uh, uh, down in the Black Hills, Greg Euler, he's got uh, some lake trout down and some reservoirs down there that, you know, once they reach a certain size, the, you know, the game and fish, the biologists down there in South Dakota realize that these lake trout have a, a, a majority diet of bluegills, right? Like there's no other lake trout population example of that, that you know, so you got this isolated population of lake trout that have learned how to eat bluegills and no one would ever teach you that, you know, you'd have to just fish them a certain way and get lucky and just be adventurous and think outside the box when you're fishing for something that you don't know much about. You know, right. it's like you got these eel pout that and, and, and to be fair, maybe you could speak on this as a talking point. Like, where are we in the evolution of eel pout fishing? Are we still like trying to learn basic things about eel pout? Are we still trying to learn general uh, 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 patterns about them and ways to catch them, or are they just consistent enough that the information we know now we just need to disseminate to the masses because that's that's the deal? Like, where do, where do you think we are in that in that timeline, that evolution of learning about them? Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think we're right there. I mean, outside of fishing them open water, um, like if you if if you want to go target eel pout in July, I don't I don't I don't personally know anybody that's that's going out in July and crushing them. I mean, we're not we're not at that evolution where it, where it's a twelve month a year species. I've I've personally experimented uh, late fall, like just as as you know, if you happen to get one of those nicer days into October, into November, where the lakes aren't frozen yet, but they're darn close, and you got a nice evening with some warmer temps. I've gone out and chased them then. But where I've had my most luck with open water is is immediately after ice out, going out the first uh, two weeks of of ice out, and catching fish then. And it's and it's very similar. I'm finding them in similar spots. I mean, at that point, you're looking at post spawn, and they're kind of they're trying to eat up because they're not as active in the summer. I mean, we 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 kind of know that from the scientific research and the fact that. You don't go out walleye fishing in the summer and catch a uh, a pile of eel pout. Right. The incidental do, catches go way down, right? Right. I mean, it happens from time to time. You guys might catch one or two, but it's not a not nearly like as much as if you go walleye fishing in the end of December, the the incidence of, of eel pout that you catch, right? Yeah. They're, yep, they're just yep. more active in the uh, more active in that colder water. But I think as far as ice fishing goes, yeah, I think I think we've got a pretty good factor on, on on what they're doing and how to target them and what to look for and what to go after. Now I say that, and now I'm going to kind of talk off the other side of my face and tell you that every single lake I've fished for Yopout plays out a little different. Uh, as far as, you know, maybe depths that they target – um, but for the most part, I'm still looking for the same type of things. I'm looking for access to deep water and I'm looking for harder bottom. I've had lakes where they relate to weeds and weed edges. Uh, I've had lakes that they don't relate to those at all. And some lakes that I fish them out into 40 to 50 feet, some lakes that I don't go over 25. So it's all very lake dependent, but I think the basic knowledge we have, you can kind of gear that towards the lake you're going to go target them on yeah and that's that's pretty i i that's kind of the fun of it though isn't it i mean obviously if it was easy anybody would do it but also you know look at every other fishing example you know midwest game fish if you're fishing for you know crappies bluegills you know walleyes uh, pike whatever it is like every lake does have its own little flavor almost always you know if you fish enough lakes and you you fish often enough you're going to experience that all the time and 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 really that kind of sometimes ends up being the beauty of it too um so like for that you know talking about you know kind of having a little bit of a recipe for success dialed in i mean what does it take you know, if we were to, before we really get into like, you know, maybe breaking down a lake or breaking down a spot or what your method to your madness is that way. I mean, what does it take like gear wise? Let's, let's maybe shift into something like that and just talk a little bit about, you know, some technical gear information. Like what, what is, uh, what would be like the intermediate level of tackle and gear that somebody should have? And, and, and what is, you know, what, what would be some homework that somebody could do before they go fishing? You know, what's that little package look like? Right, so we'll we'll start on the rod and reel end of it. 
Um, especially because you have a chance of catching a bigger fish. Uh, 2000 series reel. One, you want the line capacity because you're fishing some deeper water. And two, then you got just that, you know, those 2000 series always have a little bit better drag than some of those smaller 500 or 1000, like smaller reels that we're typically using for, for ice fishing, for walleyes and whatever. So like, and then I would say, you know, I always go heavy on my rods and I like a, a nice fiberglass rod. Um, you know, Clam makes those new katanas. Um, even, you know, with Jason's line, Mitchell's line, uh, he's got some heavier fiberglass rods as well. Uh, my favorite uh, is the tuned up custom rods Vulcan. It's a rod they came out with a couple of years ago. Um, and I kind of pushed them. I'm like, get me a lighter fiberglass rod, you know, like a, a really light lake trout rod, but something that I can use for yelp out. And that's kind of like that perfect, I would say a medium heavy fiberglass because you don't need any sensitivity. These things, when they hit, you I mean, you know that they're on. Yeah. It's all about You're, just what fights the fish best, right? All right. Right. And you, the nice thing about that fiberglass is they just bounce. Just they're absorbing those. I mean, if anybody's, if you've ever caught a eel pout, you know exactly what I mean by, and it, it head shakes or eel pout twisty turns, whatever they're doing, um, they'll kick the, they'll kick your butt, especially those, once you get up in that eight, eight pound plus range. I mean, it's a fight. It's a heavy duty fight. I liked, and then I prefer a longer rod because I like to fish them outside. It's kind of like end of the season. Typically you're fishing them in nicer weather. I'm not fishing in a house if I can. So a nice long rod to stand there. I don't have to kneel down by my hole and finesse. I can just stand up, nice long rod, and pound the bottom. And as far as tackle goes, um, glow and noise. And my favorite line of tackle is Big Nasty Tackle. Um, my friend Adam started it a few years back. He recently sold the company to uh, to Matt Erickson. Uh, he's based out of Cass Lake. He owns the... Uh, the bait shop in, in Cass Lake and he's taken over the line. Um, it's, they use the best glow paint because glow is really important. It glows bright and it stays glowing for a long time. They got rattles built in. Now all of my lures I modified with more rattles and, and make them a little bit noisier. I mean, sometimes that's the ticket some nights. I mean, there's still a fish, but typically I like to have a lot of noise on them. And then, uh, what are we missing as far as that stuff goes? Line. Uh, early season outside, I like heavy monofilament, uh, something like 10 to 14 pound mono, uh, as it warms up and if I'm fishing deeper water, I will, uh, I'll rig rods up with, uh, with braids sometimes, but I just had such good luck with, with that heavier mono. Um, it doesn't freeze up and I don't have to mess with worrying about it because You'll have pout that'll sometimes chase you up and down, kind of like a, you know, a lesser extent than a lake trout does. But where you want to reel up a little bit and then drop line back out, you don't want you don't want that line to freeze up. So I I really prefer a, a good heavier mono. Right on, and you know, talking about like your lure selection, uh, you know, and rod and reel. So often when we're talking. Uh, you know, that kind of technical information, especially on this show, it usually has a lot to do with, or a lot of fishermen have opinions on 
you know, selecting the right rod action with the right line for, say, their cadence or, you know, their presentation, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, speaking to that, you know, I mean, you know, the, the fiberglass rod is is best for the back end where you're fighting the fish and, and getting them topside. But talking about, you know, triggering a bite or whatever, like, what's that part like? I mean, are, are they just a, a non-selective fish? If they want you, they're going to eat you. Uh, is there any finesse involved? Like, what's kind of your progression as that goes, you know, tying it into your gear selection? So now we've got, you know, kind of this upsized gear. You know, we've got mm-hmm. some a little bit heavier line, you know. And so, you know, how does that translate to, you know, yeah, triggering bites and, and how big your baits are and what you got down below the ice? Yeah, there's not a ton of finesse when you're pounding bottom with one ounce jigs. It's like where where I where I talk about the fiberglass rods and you don't need the sensitivity because when they hit, they hit. But to trigger the bites, I mean, I always start every night aggressive, three foot lift, and just slack line drop, hit the bottom, slowly lift up, because that's when they usually hit. They hit on that that bottom pause. They'll come and scoop it up right off the bottom. You might not even feel the hit. You'll go to lift and, oh, there's a fish on there, and you set the hook. Um, some nights, I mean, when they get finicky, you might just never even get the bait off the bottom. Just simply you're shaking it. Just the rod tip is just moving the bait enough. Just little tiny movements on the bottom. Sometimes that's, if they're finicky, that can be a, a way to trigger that might be the only way they eat it i've had other had it's rare but i've had dead stick nights where I basically blow my lure up hit the bottom hold it up a foot and just hold it there for 30 seconds drop it and hit the bottom and then lift it back up and hold it i would say those are my three ways that i kind of go after them and fish them as far as as technique or, or cadence as as you mentioned um, yeah outside of that really that's those are my three main ones and i would say that it's 90 percent three foot drop pause lift it back up three feet drop pause that's probably 90 percent of my eel pout fishing uh nine percent bottom shaking on those nights where they're where they're finicky or if you mark if you graph one that 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 comes in but won't eat on the pause just shake it on the bottom and I would say 1% of my fishing in my lifetime has been the the dead stick hold. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, f- what I'm getting from that is like, again, just, you know, just translating and relating to, to what I have in my, say my walleye tackle box. It's like, right. you know, finesse fishing means different things, you know, to different species on different bodies of water. And it can mean downsizing a lure or, you know, you, you can fish small lures really aggressively or big lures, you know, subtly or, you know, whatever. There's a spectrum and all that. And it usually, uh, you know, quantifies itself into, you know, you got to go back to the store and buy more stuff. But when, <laughs> when you're talking about eel pout, you know, you can pretty much attack any bite this time of year anyways with, you know, a, a, a basically a small tackle box of stuff. You just got to know how to use it a couple of different ways, a variety, and you should be able to trigger. I mean, am I, am I, am I saying that right? Like if I, cause I'm learning as you're talking right now. So, yep. I mean, am I interpreting that croc correctly? Absolutely. I mean, and I've got guys that are like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this and I'm going to do this. I'm going to try that. And I kind of was, I'm always like, go for it. 
but you're going to come back around to the yeah, same basic Yeah, better stuff. you than me, right? <laughs> well, I've already done it. I've sure. tried a bunch of different stuff. Um, I've had some success with rattle baits. Uh, the, re the big reason I don't like fishing with them is every single rattle bait I've ever fished with has two treble hooks on it. And pout have really hard mouths, and when they eat a bait, they eat the heck out of it. So you just you're dealing with a with an unhooking process. Typically, outside your hands get cold. Where you know I've really switched to that pout pounder, where it's basically just a big single hook. And the reason I'm doing that is because one, it works, and two, my I can unhook that fish quickly get it back down the hole and be back down there catching another one. Because, you know, as we enter spawn, you're not going out. I mean, it's lake dependent, but if I go out to my numbers lake, I go out fishing, basically planning on coming home after I've caught my 30th fish. Like, I'm going to catch 30 tonight, then I'm going to go home. There's certain lakes where I say that. Well, I don't want to spend half my time screwing around with treble hooks and trying to unhook fish where I can, when I know I can just, this works and I can unhook the unhook it. Um, but it's, it's glow and it's rattle, but, and then half the fun too is I have experimented cause it, it is fun. So I'm not going to discourage any anglers to not play around with their stuff, but two key things you want to look for is, is glow and, and noise, a rattle of some sort. Right on. And, you know, to kind of dig into what you're saying there as well, um, you know, bite windows. I think that's a big thing. When you consume eel pout content nowadays, and there's there's some out there now. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's it it is this whole popular thing now, uh, which is great. Um, but that being said, you you can see some. You know, where you're preaching a lot of nighttime fishing, but then there's plenty of examples where people are catching them before uh, before dark. I mean, what is that? You know, it. How do you translate like the bite windows as we talk about them with other fish species? You know, low light periods you know mm -hmm. uh majors and minors or whatever it is i mean how do you explain bite windows in the eel pout world so now all winter and up until up until spawn i'm not i'm not worried about going out i, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily even have to drill a hole until the sun sets and even after because they usually don't they really don't start biting on most lakes till it's dark dark like an hour after sunset um, but then as you near spawn, I don't know if, if I knew this, I'd probably be, well, I would be a millionaire. Nobody cares. It's yellow pout. Um, <laughs> well, not anymore. I think you could. Well, yeah, but I would still wouldn't be a millionaire. Uh, maybe be a, I'd have a couple hundred bucks, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, as they near spawn and, and during the spawn, then they all of a sudden bite during the day. They're it totally flip-flops. Um, you could go out and fish for them at night during the spawn and have, I've done it. I've had like okay success where I'm still catching the sunfish. It's very frustrating. <clears throat> Excuse me. Fishing during the spawn at night because you will mark, if you're in the right, the, these right spawning zones, you will mark hundreds of, of you'll graph a hundred fish and five of them will bite. So you kind of spin your, you're like, it's kind of like beating your head against the wall. You're like, why won't they bite? Why won't they bite? And no matter what you do, you're only going to get a handful of bites. Now you go back to that same spot at 11 o'clock in the morning the next day. Now you mark a hundred fish 
and 60 of them are going to bite. They just, something happens during the spawn where they turn into daytime eaters. And I don't know if it's because they're spawning during the day so they can kind of see each other in the spawn balls. And at night they're just, there's the only only thing on their mind is, is spawn and they're just waiting waiting for daylight i you know I, I i really can't explain it but you've got a usually it's about a 10 day window where that spawn is happening and the, then the bite turns to a daytime thing then post spawn it goes back to they go back to their nighttime feeding rituals and routine and obviously you have a little bit of a like the post spawn kind of recovery period um but then as you know, if you get some of those years where the ice is still on and end of April, you could get into some pretty good bites there too. And and that's typically too when I when I mention the uh, the open water thing, fishing them right after ice out. What I found is uh, fishing those same typical areas um, where you're finding them pre-spawn and all midwinter, um, just kind of those feeding feeding areas and. Got a good, pretty good bite until service temps hit about 50 degrees. That seems like when it slows down. Yeah, man. And I mean, to to break down lakes, okay, we'll, we'll kind of shift, you know, uh, um, into just uh, expectations, right? Because there's a lot mm-hmm. of people that uh, aren't, even if you've uh, targeted eel pout maybe for one or two years, you know, realistically, it's still, you know, days uh, uh, would still uh, probably compute how many, how much experience people have into them. You know what I mean? It's not like you have years of experience. It, you know, like like you, you've got years of experience. So mm-hmm. to to break down lakes, but just from a from from what I want to come through here is just like you know setting an expectation. So so it can be pretty generic, but just you know like when you're breaking down a, a lake for eel pout. Is it, I mean, could you, do you feel like you could go somewhere else in the world or somewhere else within proximity of, of where you are at, but it's a new lake, you've never been there, you know, do, do you feel like you could uh, sort of break that lake down in say a day or two of fishing? Like, like for eel pout, how do you, how do you know what to expect um, or how, how do you create your own expectation and, and what, I guess, you know, what is considered good eel pout fishing? I mean, you, you said you've got numbers lakes where you could catch 30 in a night, but, you know, not everybody ha- uh, uh, can fish them like you, you know, is 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 as efficient as you are. So, you know, if we're looking at like that, yeah, that kind of a beginner's expectation or an intermediate expectation, you know, what is considered good eel pout fishing to you if you were to go break down a brand new body of water and, and have to learn it? If it's a brand new body of water that I've never fished, one fish means i had success um really i mean there's i've literally spent hours and hundreds of dollars in gas not catching yelp out because i i was spending a lot of time fishing these low low density lakes where the populate there's just not a ton of yelp out in there now there's a pretty damn good sense of accomplishment when you catch one. Oh yeah. When you know that you're the first person that's been on this lake and has targeted the pout probably maybe ever. And you, and you figured something out, you put, you put the pieces together. Um, 
But you have to look at populations, densities to kind of come to your, like, what do I, what should I get out of tonight? What should I expect? Um, and, and finding populations out is, is a tough, it's a tough thing. I mean, I mean, outside of, you know, your best bet is talking to locals uh, and talking to guys that fish the lake a bunch. And I think you can get a good sense on, on what the Eopal population is just based on talking to the guys that, that walleye fish it a lot in the winter and we'll spend some time out there after dark. Um, for if you talk like Lake Bemidji, for example, I've talked to guys that, well, they're 10, 15 years older than I am that went to college at BSU and they would go out and catch 40 or 50 a night on Lake Bemidji. My best night on Lake Bemidji is eight fish. So you can see what, yeah, you know what's, you know what changed. Were I and I have never asked them because I'd, I'd probably just get frustrated what they were doing with those forty and fish, forty and fifty oh, fish. Yeah. Oh yeah, nights. I, I have a sneaking suspicion I know what happened. Um, but you you can hear those kind of stories and see what where the populations are are fluctuating. No, I think everything's kind of coming back. Nobody's. We touched on it earlier. The you know, the wanton waste, throwing them out because they're a trash, quote unquote, trash fish. Well, now people are respecting them. They're either, you know, keeping them to eat or they're like, nope, I'm going to let this thing go. And and hopefully it makes more baby yield out and I get to catch more in the future. But yeah, like as far as expectations go, I don't expect 30 yield out if I go to Lake Bemidji. I don't expect 30 yield out if I fish some of these these smaller local lakes, if I can catch a handful, I'm, 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 I'm jacked, but you get to some of the, like I said, I'm targeting larger, larger bodies of water typically have a better pop, pop population. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure, and it kind of speaks to your experience too. I mean, nobody, nobody plans on say breaking down a new body of water or hopefully they shouldn't expect to say land on the best spot, right? That, that takes time. You know, to find a spot that is really going to produce, you know, man, there's so one in a million that that's the first place you try. So for you, is there a direct correlation with how successful you might be during the right time of year doing all the right things with, you know, say how many holes you drill uh, or how many spots you check? I mean, how do you go through spots um, and decide that they're going to be good? Because, I mean, if it's an after dark kind of a bite, it's not mm-hmm. as easy to run and gun right after dark. You don't see as well. You know, you're you're basically using a headlamp yourself. And if you're going to hop spot to spot, you got to have, you know, mapping and all that sort of thing. I mean, talk about that. Like, you know, for for eel pout, do you uh, do you really just got to have one or two spots close proximity, make yourself really efficient, but just hunker down, put your head down and just do it a lot of times and hope that eventually you strike gold? I, I think so. I mean, honestly, if you're, if you're trying to learn how to eel pulp fish and break down, break down a lake, I mean, realistically, it's going to take you an entire eel pulp season to figure it, to possibly figure it out. Obviously, smaller bodies of water are a little more, <laughs> a little easier because your, your, your number of spots are less, but to effectively, to effectively break down a body of water, um, I guess if if you don't need to sleep and you don't have a wife 
or, or a husband for that matter. Yep. And you want to really learn how to do it. I mean, like I told you, my eel pout season kicks off right now when it goes till mid-March, basically a month. So you're, you're trying to break down a body of water in, in, in realistically four weeks of time for the, and, and I say that as, as the primo bite, right? Like Yeah, there's a little bit of a lead up. I mean, I think it's fair right. to say that people have been catching, you know, you know, uh, even if it's incidental catches, but I mean, people are catching and, and you'll see like social media nowadays, right? Like, man, 10 years ago, you'd have been only made fun of. If you posted a picture of an eel pot, now it's like the biggest badge of honor. So right. you, you're seeing more. You're seeing more of it. You know, we're putting the pieces to the puzzle together a little bit better. So yeah, I, th- I think it's yeah. it's fair to say it's generally accepted that there's a bit of a lead in and probably a bit of a uh, you know a walkout uh, uh, over yeah. you know before and after this uh, this primo season. But man, I like the way you put that. I think that is such an important thing to remind people is that you know you're not going to. You're not going to go out on a particular body of water and learn even so much as a portion of that lake in, say, two nights of fishing or three nights of fishing. I mean, to know what's really there, you really got to you really got to put your time in. And I think there's kind of a beauty of that to that, you know, where, uh, you know, uh, bites or, you know, stuff that takes a lot of work usually kind of keeps the riffraff out. If you know, if you know what I'm saying. So I kind of like this especially a winter like this. I mean, this is, we're going through a winter and a, you know, coming into eel pout season. This is an eel pout fisherman's nightmare. We've got way too much snow, flooding conditions. Um, you, you basically need a snowmobile. Well, heck, and tough to get motivated to go out and go bang around and try some new stuff or even try some old stuff when you know you're going to be dealing with negative temperatures and it seems like the wind blows every night and you plus you got a stone bail out and then come back in and you know that was that's always one of my favorite things about eel pout fishing is it's usually nice it's usually 20 some degrees outside and i drive my truck right to where i want to go with my gps on my dash it's like well, i'm gonna go try i'm gonna try waypoint 705 tonight and Give that an hour. If I don't catch anything, I'm going to go try two new spots and I'm going to drive home. And you drive your truck right to each spot and you drill one hole outside your door. I call it truck fishing and it's the greatest way to fish eel pout, I think. Um, where winter's like this, it's kind of like I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to a, a known spot or a high percentage spot and set up my fish house once, deal with the snow and this cold and catch or not catch and then head home. It's tough to do, tough to do a lot of exploring. Um, Probably, I'm getting old and and bitter at winter as a, as I age, but uh, you know the the younger guys got a little more ambitious ambition and they'll and are a little more motivated. I always I always joke. I've got these college kids here in Bemidji. They're like, "Come out, eel pout fishing with us." And I'm like, "No, it's going to be four degrees tonight, and I've caught." I've caught your pout before. I'll wait and do it when it's comfortable. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, man, that's actually yeah, may, maybe this winter. And it's that that story's yet to be told because you know there there's quite a bit of eel pout season left, and it it, it oh, could yeah. get nice, no doubt. Um, it just started, right? We yeah, can... but uh, but yeah, man, there there is kind of a beauty to it, and and most of the hard sided shacks are kind of getting off the water. Usually most years by then, especially like in Minnesota, you know, there's kind of a, yep. I think, you know, end of February or whatever it is, they got to be off and, and the walleye season's done, you know, so you kind of get the, 
you kind of get the rest of the riffraff out and then it's, you know, then you still got that, that primo time of the eel pout season to get after it. I think, I think that's definitely part of the beauty of it. You know, you already explained that, you know, it's like, gosh, when those seasons, when the big game fish seasons are off and everybody else is just looking for bluegills and crappies and you've got a fishing opportunity to catch a, a, a hard fighting, great eating, big, uh, and now we can say big game fish. Um, mm-hmm. you know, especially in Minnesota where they are now considered a game fish. That is the coolest thing. I mean, yep. you know, you, you kind of, you were alluding to it, talking about your favorite aspects of eel pout fishing. If I was going to mm-hmm. ask you that, and I'm sure you've heard it a million times, I'm going to ask you right now, what's your favorite thing about eel pout fishing? 12 pounders. Big ones, huh? Or bigger. That's as I've like, like, we talked about like I've caught enough. I don't have to go out and go catch three pounders after three pounders after three pounders and four pounders, whatever. I'm going out now and I'm not gonna give away all my secrets, but there's a certain there's a handful of lakes that I'm going out that I'm gonna that I will go spend my time on. I will go I'll cook the trailer up and I'll snowmobile out. And I'll go fish, even when it's not nice and not my perfect ideal conditions. And maybe fish for, I might fish for one bite. Just because it, I know that it's, it's, a, it's a lower density population. But I have the chance at a 10, 12, 13, 14 pound fish. And I'll, you know, that's what gets me excited now. Um, don't get me wrong, I still like to get out and go, go bang a bunch every once in a while, but I really love the go chasing those bigger ones. There's just something about those bigger ones, man. They're just, they're a whole different animal. They look different. They fight different. They're, they're just, there's something about them. They, you, you crack that 10 pound mark once and it's just like, I don't want to catch another five pounder ever. What is the Minnesota state record? You know, uh, 19 oh, something. That's yeah, it's nineteen something. It's been so. My friend Aaron Guthrie here in Bemidji broke the record a handful of years ago. He had held the state record, um, and when I think when he caught it was nineteen pounds six ounces, eight ounces. I think his is. If you're ever in Bemidji, go to Northwoods Bait Shop. He's a part owner of the Northwoods Bait Shop, and they've got he's got it mounted. It sit, sits up in there, and I got to hold that fish. He got up on Lake of the Woods, and I got to hold it when he came back to town. It was just, I mean, even then after it had been, you know, laying in a bucket for a while, it was still just incredible, just the size of it. I mean. How long is that fish? This was like 36. Japers. Somewhere somewhere in that range. So the state record has been broke, I think, twice since he caught his. His his has been broke twice. It still isn't 20 pounds. Um, that's, That's my dream is to go up to Lake of the Woods sometime in February and win the lottery and happen to catch the 20 pounder. Somebody, oh, man. There's too many fish houses out, out there and too many. There's a 20 pounder swimming around Lake of the Woods. I know there is. There's got to be. That's a big body water. And I mean, to speak on that, 
And I kind of wrote down a note here earlier. I'm going to try to tie in something you were talking about right at the beginning, talking about the spawn and the recruitment, uh, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, just maybe a little bit of conservation, um, you know, with, with the eel pout, where is it kind of, uh, you know, from the things that you've learned about eel pout, is it kind of a deal where those big fish pass on their genetics? So it's kind of, it's a, it's a nice, uh, it, it seems like a worthwhile act to maybe throw some of your bigger fish back you know, as in, you know, ahead of the spawn to to pass on those genetics, or is it kind of a? Is there really, you know, what what do we know about that? I haven't read any research or heard of anything for sure. I just am kind of going on my own personal beliefs and kind of what I've seen uh, over the years. And you go from the stories where I talked about Lake Bemidji, those guys that were 10, 12 years older than me fishing Lake Bemidji and and crushing them, and then. I've like I said, we, we maybe we, we'll catch five or six in these same same areas during the spawn. So I think less about genetics and more just about the conservation of the species and keeping letting those big females go. Um, they're the ones making more eggs. Like I said, those they're at a challenge the minute they get laid just to survive. And then you know even if they hatch, there's how many things that are going to eat them when they're small. So that's my big thing is, is, is with catch and release during spawn, pre-spawn anytime, let those big females go, keep those three to five pound males. If you can, those are the ones that are, you're going to get a nice chunk of meat and then don't go overboard right now. There's no limit in Minnesota. So yeah, we're going to have to definitely think. watch that. That's definitely going to have to be part of the conversations, no it's, question. It's, it's coming. Um, I've been doing some work with the DNR for the last few years. It's a very slow process. Um, <laughs> we're dealing with the government here. Oh, yeah. So it's 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 a slow – and it's not only the DNR. It's got to go – you know, the DNR recommends it, and then it's got to go through legislation. So it's not a – it's not as simple as convincing Bob at the fisheries department, you know, they, they probably would agree with you in a heartbeat, but it has to go through legislation. It's a lot. Yep. Yep. So yep. there's a lot of, a lot of uh, paperwork and red tape for things to happen, but it's my understanding. The first step was naming them a game fish, which has happened. And yep. Now we got a I value. Know, now we put a value yep. on their head. So yep. now and we can start the next, portion of that discussion that's that's totally true and i well, another expansion on that that sort of that part of of the discussion is you know one thing i find interesting about other fish species is like you know talking about year classes where you know sometimes you know it, it was a big deal for me to realize or be told and taught about you know recruitment in any fish species when they spawn you know, the annual, the, the seasons aren't the same every year. The conditions aren't the same. And, and, and every fish species doesn't have a guaranteed recruitment every single year. With eel pout, can you identify year classes on the certain bodies of water that you go to? Like, man, you can just tell that, you know, they had a good year class maybe like 15 years ago, but we're just not catching any in this particular size window. So, I mean, like, can you sort of see that the whole year classes conversation in some of the bodies of water that you fish? Yes and no. We have, so I've, I've went eel pout fishing and eel pout exploring for a few years with a guy that worked for the DNR. And he was actually, we went to this one lake and 
I'm just not going to say it just because it's not just yeah, a that's fishing. Fine. No, that's fine. We're just going to just to uh, avoid it. But we went to this one particular lake that none of us had ever fished. Um, heard rumors that there was a lot of eel pout in there. We go down there and fish. And yes, there was a lot of eel pout. And every single one was the same length. They were like two, two and a half pounds. They were all the same size. We're like, what the world? So the guy from the DNR kept like six of them to, to clean up. But his biggest thing was he was he wanted to age them with their, oh, uh, uh, no, I can't think of it. Um, they've got that bone in their head. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I can. I'll look it up. You keep talking. I'll look it up. It starts with an O. It starts with an O. And uh, so he aged them. Well, all those fish were like, and I can't remember now if it was six years old or eight years old, but every single fish was the same age and all the same size. And they were definitely, definitely like stunted. And I'm sure that is, they had a great spawn class and probably, well, you know, it's like any fish you can only, system can only support, support so many pounds and they probably, you know, are all competing for the same forage. And I'm sure there was other fish species in there. I mean, that's true with everything, right? I mean, right, right. you know, even if you're, even if you're the top end of the biomass in that lake, you're like, man, if you share the same size as, you know, uh, you know, or whatever it is, like if there's a, if there's a smaller population of, but say like three to four pounds, smallmouth bass in that lake, man, now you're really talking competition. Right. Right. And that's the one interesting thing is I don't know how many we caught that night. 20, 20 fish. There was like 10 of us. So when I say 20 fish, like don't, there's 10 of us going. That's another thing about eel fishing is the social aspect. You fishermen's nice on your outdoors, grab 10 buddies to go eel pout fishing. Anyway, we caught, we caught like 20 and we kept those six, but every single one was exactly the same size and older than we, we all predicted. Um, how do you say it? Otoliths or otoliths? Otoliths. 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 There it is. Yep. Otolith yep. Well, I, to be fair, I looked it up. I didn't remember. I had to look it no, up. That's... But yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, it's an otolith. Yeah, the ear stones. And um, yep, yep. yep uh, it's like tell, you, call, you call them the ear, the, uh, basically the rings on a tree. Uh, you Sometimes you can, I've seen several of them. You can see, you can kind of see the rings with your plain eye, but those, uh, you know, the fish scientists get them under a microscope and it's like, yep, it's this old and that's it. They do the, do the science. I mean, when I was working at the eel pout festival, I was involved in that for the last handful of years they did it. And, uh, on the last two years they didn't do it, but for several years, the DNR was coming and would take some of the dead ones. Uh, we, we tried to release as many as we could the last few years at the, at the pout festival, but if there happened to be some dead ones, they were, they would do it right there. Or if people were going to keep them, they would cut them quick, take that out and get the information that they needed and hand to hand the people the fish back. So the DNR has got some information, uh, at least on Leech Lake from the studies they did at, uh, at the Yopal festival. It'd be interesting. I, th that's usually all public information. I've never, I haven't digged too hard to try to find that, but if somebody is interested in that, Typically, you just call the fisheries office and say, "Hey, I want any re any of your studies that that you did that from that from the Yopal Festival or anything you've got on on Yopal. They'll they'll give you the information or tell you where to find it because that's that's public information. That's those studies are stuff we paid for as, as yeah. taxpayers. Yeah, and I think that you know for for the for the 
you know, the, 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 the fishermen that likes to educate themselves, you know, even not, not even necessarily to the extent that you've gone to, I mean, you you know a lot about this stuff, but there's, you know, everybody likes to know stuff or, or whatever, you know, it seems like that, you know, there's still some pioneering to do. There's still some learning to do with these eel pout and you can be a part of that, you know, if you're kind of, mm-hmm. you know, if you're digging into that information, but at the same time, you know, if you're out there and you're catching eel pout, um, you know, even if you're catching them, taking a picture and releasing them, you know, get a weight on them, get a length on them, you know, start to build up a little bit of that database in your own head. And then you can, you know, maybe contribute that somewhere at some point in time, you know what I mean? And like, and then we can all kind of put the pieces together because it is kind of that, you know, we're, you know, talking about the evolution of eel pout and what we're going to know about them and, you know, what that means to the average fisherman that, that may or may not ever go after them. You know, all that stuff is just good information that we're going to need to know at some point uh, because there's going to be a conservation uh, conversation, a serious one, uh, you know, coming up. They'll be the next step, especially in states like Minnesota where, you know, there's no limit. Well, that that's not going to last forever. You know, no. um, so we're going to need no. to know some of this stuff and talking about recruitment and, you know, where, you know, places like, you know, like Devil's Lake walleyes, you know, uh, I've talked about it on this show a bunch of times where, you know, it's not unrealistic to think that there's really one major contributing year class, maybe once or twice a decade that really supports a, a world-class walleye fishery, right? I mean, you know, but, where it's not at 10 out of 10 years, it's not seven out of 10, it's not the majority, not even close where, no. you know, re- reproduction is, you know, considered successful, you know? So you think about eel pout where just the way that they're designed is they don't have, they don't give themselves a ton of advantages, <laughs> you know, no, in, no. in terms of recruitment. So you got to almost set the bars, the standard bar lower, and be thinking just as much, if not more serious, uh, you know, about conservation or just knowing what you kind of have there. And yeah, if you catch a real big one, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of meat on it, but at the same time, you know, put it to yourself to eh, just, you know, give that one a chance to go lay some eggs and, and uh, test your metal at uh, catching a few more that are more eater size. I think that's probably uh probably good way to go about it now. Um, oh, absolutely. And then, it's like with any species. I'm not. I'm not going to catch an 11 inch bluegill if I'm keeping 10 inchers. I'm not going to catch a 10 pound walleye if I'm if I kill an eight pounder. I'm not going to catch a 12 pound eel pout if I eat a nine pound eel pout. Yep. Right? It's 100. percent There, fish is a fish is a fish. Um, the one unique thing about eel pout and why the DNR's gotten interested in in Minnesota is they found they're a very good um, first responder to water quality. Oh, really? If, if water quality goes down, eel powder are going to be one of the first things that that suffer from it. They require deep, cold, clean water. Huh. I mean, if, if you think about the lakes that they're in in Minnesota, I mean, you even just look at, I mean, we can really break it down in North Dakota. Yeah, yeah. Really, what they're a- only in that, in that. That, that upper Missouri River Basin. I mean, yeah, I think Sakakawea. Sakakawea, I think, that's the, the only place, place that yeah. I really. Sakakawea is the only place I've ever talked to guys in North Dakota that are targeting them, yep. are trying to fish, and and there's that's a whole nother ball game. Just on the tiny little bit of conversations I had with guys that are fishing out there, it doesn't seem to be a high density population. You've got a system that's got significantly deeper basin than the lakes we're fishing around here. So you've kind of got to take everything that I've said and kind of, you know, gear it to to that deeper water. What are those fish feeding on? And 
because they realistically, I mean, they've, they've found eel pout at, or burbot in, what is it? A couple thousand feet of water on Lake Superior? Oh yeah, I imagine. I mean, I, mean, I think, yeah, there's it's, some it's stuff. It's ridiculous what the stuff they can handle. You know, I think the real message, you know, t- talking about, you know, other places in the world where there's eel pout, you know, you, you, you ultimately this conversation, I think the biggest part of this is if you're going to go after them, no matter where you are, the idea is to just know that you're going to have to put in some work. You know, setting Absolutely. a good solid expectation is one of the best things. If you're listening to this and, uh, you know, you're even thinking for a, a second of going eel pout fishing, it's not about heading somewhere in Jason Rylander's neck of the woods, you know, to, to get to start. It's just, right. just no one understand that if there's some eel pout around you, go after them, but just plan on putting in a little bit of work and it's going to be worth it. And, and it's one of those deals where if you do figure out or nuance yourself in a spot where you've got some eel pout going, man, it's going to be one of those deals, I suppose, in very long where the next generation is going to come up and they're going to want those waypoints handed to them. It's going to be like, you know, eel pout spots are going to be like currency, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and for the most, I mean, I found that spots change or evolve over time. It's like for two years, these eel pout use a spot and all of a sudden they, they disappear. And I think part of that is is the... Some of the research I found is they don't spawn every year. So you might have, this area might have these fish come to spawn. And then those fish don't spawn the next year. That spot's not going to be that great or something, you know. But I find for the most part, your your good spots are your good spots, but they, they will evolve. You'll have great nights and bad nights. I mean, there's still a fish. It, they'll sometimes they just don't want to bite or they're maybe they're not moving as much it's a pressure you know maybe the pressure's higher maybe the pressure's lower maybe it's a full moon or maybe it's a new moon you know there's still fish right yep 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 definitely you're gonna have to put in you're gonna have to put your time in and enough days or nights to give yourself a good chance to at least hit one of those windows and just hope that you're on a you know a good enough spot to have a little bit of success and and I can only imagine the first one and the last one are the hardest ones to catch. And yeah. uh, once you get that first one, man, yeah, I'm still looking for my first one. I, I've caught, so I've had some incidental catches before up on Lake of the Woods. We're walleye fishing, yep. I'll be honest. So if anybody ever sees a picture of me holding the Neil Pout, don't, uh, don't, uh, you know, I'm not trying to take credit for, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, anything that I know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but definitely, um, I know how good they are to eat. I think they're one of the coolest looking fish ever. I've taken some some of my most favorite uh, uh, photos that I've taken in the industry. You know, just traveling around with with Jason. Um, you know, holding the camera most of the time where uh, we've gone into Canada before, and I, I just think they're some of one of the coolest looking fish. I I think that's the first and easiest thing probably for somebody to get over is they might look a certain way, but once you actually put your hands on them, they're not that tricky to handle. Um, in the, I mean, they're slimy, but in the sense of, you know, they don't have fangs, they don't have teeth, they don't, they're not poisonous, you know, they're not going to like get you. Um, there's no, there's, there's zero things to poke you on. Yeah. They're like, they're soft and easy to handle in that way. And, uh, you know, they, uh, yeah, they're just, they're, they're cool looking. Once you really get them up close, it takes you about 10 seconds to realize there's something to appreciate. And uh, yeah, man, I think it's cool. And I'm glad that we're breaking this down right now. We can round this out. I kind of have, 
you know, just a, just a couple end closers and yeah. one, one would be bucket list, man. You, you live in a really cool place in the world. You've caught a whole bunch of them. Where haven't you gone for eel pout that you know you'd want to go? It's the easiest question you've asked me. Baker with the Conrad brothers. Oh my gosh. I, I just watched that video like two weeks ago. World, oh my gosh. The world record holder. Come yeah. On. Easy. Yeah. Bar none. Easy. It's on my bucket list. And the, boy, if I don't do that within the next five years, I'm going to be disappointed. But yeah, to go up there and fish with them and, and uh, go take a swing and try to beat their 25 pounder. Wouldn't it be fun to do that with them standing right next to me? And they're the type of guys think, that would love I that think, too. Uh, those, I don't know them all. I've chatted with them online a little bit um, about obviously about Yopout, but they, they seem like the kind of guys that if I traveled out there, Yopout fished with them, and I caught a twenty-six pounder, they would be as excited as I was. Yeah, yeah, they definitely seem like those. They, they're they're the guys, man. They got the juice, and they know their eel pout too. Holy cow, they they know more than oh, that. Yeah. But I mean, man, do they? I mean, they, but but to be fair, we're all products of our environment, though. So kudos to those guys for taking advantage of something that's you know, but uh, they're where they're from, you know, or right. you know, in the, you know, the, uh, so I mean, you're from Minnesota, you're from northern Minnesota now, anyways, and uh, yeah. you know, kudos to you for. You know, gosh, you you know, you really uh, dug deep into a fishing opportunity before most anybody would have ever really considered it a good fishing opportunity. So I think that's right. cool, man. Well, that's that's cool. Maybe uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to uh, you know uh, beg you to to take us along on that trip. I think that's something we could probably collaborate on for sure. Uh, well, that would be. Cool. And uh, so I guess that being said, you know, now would be the time where I would tell you, let's wrap it up. Share any of your socials, any content, any anything anyone can find you. Um, and also, uh, there's no way that I asked every good question about eel pout here. What are some What are some other great uh, conversations that you've had? Any topics? We've got enough time here. We can we can we can cover anything we want. But uh, any any common questions that you get that I didn't ask here, or just any fun eel pout conversations that you have every year that you just some things that you'd like to bring up uh, before wrapping it up. Well, there's, we talked about social media. There's a couple of Burbit groups. Um, there's a Minnesota one that I follow and I'm pretty active on as far as answering questions. Um, there's a worldwide one that's really neat because then you've got guys from, there's a ton of uh, Burbit up, Bur- British Columbia. I've, they're, they're super popular up there. Those guys are fishing them in rivers up there. Fishing them. They'd listen to this podcast and be like, you're an idiot. None of that stuff would work on the river, right? They're fishing them just totally different. Um, I've talked to guys up in Alaska in that same group too. So there's there's some really cool things to follow and see. Share your pictures. Share your, share your success. Um, those, are, those are a couple of great groups. Um, pretty positive. Doesn't seem like guys are too negative. Uh, one big thing right now is guys are posting uh, – little snippets of maps and be like, Hey, want to concentrate on this area tonight? Which spots would you target eel pout? Well, based on your depth contours, I would try this, this, and this without knowing any bottom content. And I always preach like, you know, if if any of these spots have hard bottom, that's where I would start. Um, But you know, you look at these spots and so it's fun to see where other guys are pointing out on the map to try outside of, of some of the stuff where I would try. Uh, but those groups are a great way to to share knowledge, to learn some stuff. Um, 
share, and like I said, share successes. And um, as far as my social media goes, I've got an Instagram page, uh, I fish with Jason. My Facebook is just Jason Rylander. Look me up. Uh, I get questions frequently about eel pout, uh, especially in, in private messaging. I will spew every piece of knowledge I've got uh, outside of giving you GPS spots. But I'm a, I want I want people to catch more fish. Fishing's fun. Yeah, man. That's fishing's the deal. Fun. Catching is catching is even better, but fishing is really fun. But but I want people to catch fish. I want people to enjoy the eel pout. I want people to to love it like I do. I want somebody to send me a picture like, hey, I went and tried what you said. I caught this ten pounder. Yes, that's awesome. That's what I want. I want to help people catch more fish. I'm an open book to it. I get a lot of questions about guiding for eel pout. I just honestly, I just don't have the time. I I might take a couple of people. Usually, usually it's uh, people that I know, or something that happens to be in the area when I've got some time. Um, I don't really guide for them, but there are some guys that I that are in my little circle around here that do guide for them, and I can definitely point you in their direction if you're looking for a trip locally. Um, it might not be me taking you out, but it's definitely people that I that I fish with and trust, and and people that will put you on fish. There's definitely something to this whole eel pout thing because there's some fishermen that have fished their whole lives, you know, uh, in my age bracket in their 30s that I thought I knew pretty well. I thought they were decent, normal, uh, well-adjusted, tax-paying Americans, and then they went eel pout fishing one time and they went totally, totally crazy, man. Their whole lives turned upside down and that's it. They don't even, there's no, no consideration for health or hygiene. For the the early part of March every year, it just it, it's 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 whatever they they go big or go home, and it's like it it's totally it's so changed fun. their life. It's crazy, man. I miss the uh, I really do miss the, with the my early days. I don't know how my <laughs> wife put up with it because I was fishing four nights a week, five nights a week. They get home at one two o'clock in the morning, trash, get up, go to work, go have dinner with the family, and then. Six o'clock, roll around, be back out the door. <laughs> shower every four days, maybe. Oh, I showered every. You have to shower every day. Those things. Well, I suppose. Gear. I suppose. I my have gear. Heard that. My gear was awful. I, she made me leave my gear uh, on the truck. I had to take my bibs off and out there. That's awesome. Truck, truck six stinks like yellow pout till June. Oh yeah. That's what it is, man. Well, we'll let you back to it, and uh, yeah, good luck out there. Yep. Thank. Thank you. <laughs>